Hello and welcome to this Faber Poetry Podcast. My name is George Miller, and my guest in this programme is Emily Berry, whose debut collection, Dear Boy, was published this spring. Emily Berry grew up in London and studied English at Leeds University and creative writing at Goldsmiths College. She won an Eric Gregory Award in 2008 and co-edits the anthology series Stop Sharpening Your Knives. Reviewing Dear Boy in The Observer, Kate Kellaway wrote, Emily Berry's debut is a treat. She is a new, yet anything but hesitant voice. What is stimulating is that she approaches poetry as a flexible, permissive, dynamic ally. She seems to have complete freedom with form, and will use a poem, whenever helpful, as a vehicle for escape, a getaway car. She concluded, Berry's range is amazing. In the International Year of the Poem, Emily Berry summons into being a world in which no one could deny that poems were powerful, and later says, poems were going off across the world. And although the tone may be ironic here, it seemed to me that Berry's poems do indeed go off in the most positive sense. Many of them explode into being, dramatising relationships and interior monologues, often off-kilter ones, and at the same time revelling in the power of language to create other realities far removed from the quotidian. In this interview, you can hear Emily read several poems from the collection, but when we met at Faber's offices recently, I began by asking her about her reading tastes in childhood. Well, I always read a lot. I grew up in quite a kind of bookish household. Both my parents were writers of one kind or another, and there was always lots of books around. And I think I probably started writing from a very young age, although, again, I don't really remember how that happened. I'm an only child, so quite typically I spent a lot of time on my own reading, and there's something really... I guess, magical about the books you read when you're a child. Like now, I occasionally have reread books I read as a child and it's never quite the same and it's almost better not to because you have this kind of memory of this amazing world that you inhabited and then it's, when you reread it as a grown-up, you sort of see the sort of way in which the language is very simplistic or something and it doesn't quite add up. I don't know if I can remember specific poetry sort of reading. I know I was given an anthology by my godmother when I was, I can't remember what age, but youngish, that's called um, Other Men's Flowers, quite a famous anthology. And I read a few of those poems a lot, and one of them was The Ballad of Reading Jail, which I read over and over again. For some reason, I took quite a shine to it, and I remember I would recite it to older friends, my dad, or like friends of my parents who came to the house, sort of, I don't know how that went down. <laughs> and did the writing of poetry, was that something that was a thread throughout? Because I, I guess a lot of children enjoy writing poetry, but that sort of tails off, perhaps, um, in adolescence. I remember writing a few poems when I was sort of maybe 10 or so. I, I, I wrote a lot of stories when I was a child. I have all these exercise books from primary school filled with these stories. I don't know if there were poems that I was writing in my spare time. I don't have any copies of them if so but I remember writing a few poems when I was sort of 10 and 11 and then it was actually when I got into adolescence I started to write poetry more kind of avidly and it was usually like unrequited love poetry yeah there was a phase of writing quite a lot I suppose around between like 14 and 17 or something and I started reading poetry a bit more then so I think Sylvia Plath was probably the first person I was really reading 
and then John Berryman. And then it kind of tailed off when I was at university and it was only after that that I sort of got back into it again. Do you know what the, the first poem that you still, what, what you think of as your sort of first mature poem, the first poem that you would be sort of happy to, to see in print today? Oh, that's a difficult question. Um, it would be something that I wrote when I was like in my early to mid-twenties. And I guess it would probably be one of the earliest ones that I got published, which was probably, there's a poem in the collection called Two Budgies, which is probably one of the oldest, if not the oldest poem in the book. And that was the first one I got kind of accepted for publication somewhere. So that was quite, I remember getting that letter and being really excited because before that had just been like loads of rejection letters although they would become a kind of increasingly a bit more sort of friendly like well we didn't like this but we can see it might be worth sending us more or something tell me about this collection your your debut collection you mentioned one of the the oldest poems there but this represents your work over a number of years presumably i guess so the oldest poem is probably written in maybe 2005 or six so what's that that's like seven eight years and i've heard a lot of other people say this when they've published their first collection is you kind of put everything you have that you think is any good into it and then suddenly that's it your cupboard is completely bare and it's like you're kind of back to square one which is kind of both a good and a sort of frightening experience and I always feel in between every poem that I'm never going to write another poem again. So that's sort of the phase I'm in at the moment. But it feels good to at least, you know, at least if I don't ever write another poem again, I've got this book. Tell me about actually putting the collection together in terms of selecting what goes in. Did I see you somewhere saying it was a little bit like packing and unpacking a suitcase, trying to get the, <laughs> the order right? Yeah, I'd stand by that, I suppose. The order was changed like countless times because I'd put it into an order when I did the first draft and then I then showed that to a couple of friends and it was then reordered after that. Probably reordered several times before I even sent it to the publisher. And then once it was accepted, it was reordered again. And then even once it was typeset, it had to be reordered a further time because there was quite a few sort of... um, technical constraints with how the poems would sit because some of them have certain formats that mean just that they had to sit on diff- on certain pages and so on. Let me ask you perhaps to, to read a, a first poem from the collection. Letter to husband. Dearest husband, beloved husband, most respected, missed and righteous husband, dear treasured absent husband, Dear unimaginable piece of husband, dear husband of the moon, it has been six months since I. Dear much lamented distant husband, my champing heart forgives you, please come. In a long undergrowth of wanting I creep, at night the sea is a dark room, I called and called, these white corridors are not free from longing. Dear postman, dear nighttime, dear dark mouth hovering over me, dear knee bones, dear palms, dear faithful body, I have wants. Husband, speech is a dark stain spreading. I have no telephone, 
No one will give me a telephone. I lost your voice in dark places. It is written over and over that, please come. A scribble is the way a heartbeat is told. Dearest serrated husband, my heart scribbles your name. My mouth scribbles. I have cried your name in every possible color. I have given you my proud, desperate, undeviating wish over and over and over. Sweetheart, please come. Thank you. In this poem, particularly, scribbles are relevant because um, it's the kind of story from which the poem arose is about a woman, I think she's called Emma Houck, who was um, in a sort of a mental hospital sometime at the start of the 20th century. And she wrote these letters to her husband while she was in there that just said the same phrase over and over, which was sweetheart come in German. Uh, and she would write the words over the top of each other. So you can actually see these letters. They've been kind of, they were kind of rediscovered after her death and they were never sent. They were just kind of locked away in a cupboard by the hospital staff. So they basically just have these huge kind of scribbles and they're really moving. When I came across this story, I um, just found it really moving, I suppose, and I wanted to do something with it. And it took me ages to really get anywhere with it because it, it seemed hard to kind of fill in loads of words into this woman's experience where she had obviously only had a few. That's why in this poem, there's this, it's got a particular form where there's lots of kind of spaces in between the sort of lines that I suppose are meant to kind of indicate the sort of jaggedness and the serratedness of this like unrequited longing for her husband and sort of sense of abandonment. Can you say a little bit about the process that you went through from discovering her story to ending up with the, the finished poem? I think I kind of wrote a few lines like quite soon after I'd sort of heard the story and they always they never seemed quite right or to have gone anywhere I mean just say like one or two lines and I had that in a notebook I just thought oh, I'll come back to this at some point I think it was a, then a, a sort of experience in my own life I think sort of helped me to like get a bit more into the story of this woman I suppose because my partner went away to work abroad for a number of months so I suppose I like tapped into a tiny bit of what that this woman might have been feeling, although obviously completely on a much smaller scale. And I was writing sort of more sort of autobiographical poems about absence. I can't remember whether this one came before those or during, but I think that probably helped a bit with the sort of emotion behind the poem. And then I think it probably maybe just came quite quickly after that, the idea of using these spaces... I think sort of helped and maybe sort of illustrated the difficulty I had in writing the poem that it's sort of a kind of stuttering. How easy or difficult is it to know when a poem is finished, to know that you're happy to, to let it out of your hands? Is that, is that clear cut or is that difficult to determine? I think it sort of ha it has various different stages. So usually, or quite often with me, is I'll write a poem and then I'll finish it well, I'll, I'll think I've finished it and I'll, I'll, suddenly, I'll be in a sort of mild state of euphoria thinking, yeah, great, I've written a poem. And then I always have to leave it for a couple of days and then sometimes 
more times than not I'll come back to it and look at it and think oh god this is terrible and then I'll sort of put it aside and if that if I come back to it and think oh actually it's all right I'll, but I'll usually then look at it with fresh eyes and feel that there's more that has to be done and I rely a lot quite a lot on other poets to 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 look at poems and give feedback letter to husband is obviously addressed to someone and it struck me reading the collection that many of your poems are addressed to someone that's a that's a mode which you quite often uh, adopt poetry sort of generally for me when it is a kind of form of address and so i'm always speaking to someone even if there's not a sort of obvious addressee in the poem i suppose the poem is then speaking to the imagined reader or audience or something and i suppose that's just because it, it's a like it's a way of are communicating so you can't just have one person or one a speaker can't be communicating in a vacuum i think i prefer to read that kind of poetry like that i find it a bit more engaging let me ask you about the second poem you chose from the collection the the old fuel perhaps you could read that and then we could yeah. um, talk about it the old fuel half the time i'm frying onions or planning a meeting or deciding whether to plait my hair and it's all happening. Other times I wake up and the day's flung out in front of me like a roll of lino and I'd rather not step on it. I'd rather stay in bed thinking about you eating green oranges and East African donuts saying, who owns this monkey to a group of boys? One night I dream of entering a lift with sides that aren't attached to its floor. So when it goes up, I stay stuck on the ground. I take the stairs, but none of this is enough to reach you. Some things never change. John Humphreys is still shouting at someone between 7.30 and 9. Your shoes line up in the hall, and I'm cranking out oodles of love the way an old spaghetti machine cranks out spaghetti. Baby, it's hard work. Thank you. And again, you're using typography there slightly differently from in the previous one. You've you got justified margins on both sides. What, what, were you, what were you seeking to do there? I can't really say that I was like seeking to do anything. It just sort of happened. It mainly seems to occur in these poems that are about absence. I think it's got something to do with that, that it's, it sort of indicates a sort of a difficulty in the sort of the way of speaking about this particular subject. To me as a reader, what what made it very different from a sort of banal poem of separation was the, the, the sort of amazing imagery in it and this, this bizarre question, who owns this monkey? And there's this image of the of the lift taking off, but the speaker being, being left on the ground. It was literally a dream that I had, I think. I guess it, it's fairly sort of easily psychoanalyzable um, in the context of the poem that I was in one place feeling sort of static I suppose whereas um, my partner was like away and sort of experiencing all these sort of seemingly exotic from my standpoint things so I guess that was a kind of autobiographical kind of starting point but it became a bit fictionalized just in the sort of sense of inserting a sort of hint of like magical realism or something let's have another poem sweet Arlene in Arlene's house we live above the mutilated floor Arlene tells us, this is what you do, this is what you don't. We keep watch over the reddening ivy, 
We take off our shoes indoors and don't hang up our coats and never mind the cold and the bleak outlook. We think of other moments. Baby, 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 take me home. Arlene has us in one room. At night we smother the window with a system of blankets and a towel balanced on the end of a broom. We remain sane despite the worrisome nature of details. All day we are smuggled through a city where ivy rests against walls seeming incredibly peaceful and we wish it could teach us something. We say, thank you Arlene. Thanks for this opportunity. Thanks for this shaft of light lying like a plank across the floor. Thanks for the visceral scrape of the freezer trays and for a picture of a lady with no clothes on. Most of all, thank you Arlene for giving us things we did not have before, like the chance to eat pears while looking out the window at a pear tree. We've confessed to Arlene, knees to our chests in the usual position, we repeated our ritual of shiver, breathe. We recited our mantras but they came out crooked and strange. We wished we had faith. We made this prayer a faithless one. It took all our energy to say, please help. We kneeled up in bed. We had the sheets in our hands like ropes. We needed something to hold. We sent it out. We didn't know if we were talking to God or Arlene or someone else. She was behind us like a devil. The devil had her hand on my back and she stroked our hair and she was sweet Arlene. We clung to sweet Arlene and to Arlene's whisper. It was peace of some kind, but we couldn't trust her. We were scared and we'd been up all night. Sorry, Arlene, our prayer was too weak. We were too tired to repeat our spell. On the tape, a doctor's voice said, imagine a place. We did, and that place was Arlene's house. All the colourful knobs of the oven and the rickety pans and Arlene in the quiet being wickedly calm. I called my baby, take me home. I said, we're afraid of Arlene's house and we're not safe in our bones. We rattled and kept ourselves awake. We knocked and knocked. Arlene gathered us up. She cradled us and shook us till we made a sound like a rain stick and we tried to materialise. I tried to be cheeks and hips and everything you need in a woman. We woke on a plane and my head was on my baby's lap and I thought Arlene had left us. When we landed my spirit was a rose. We boarded a train and I understood everything. I felt akin to the gleaming haunches of the taxi. Arlene did not. We shushed her and rocked her, just like she taught us. We carried her back to our house. Thank you. And Arlene occurs again later in, in the book. And I have to confess, I think I need more help with this one than some of the other poems in the book. I found it more opaque and I got less purchase on it, although I enjoyed lots of the images in it. So I wonder if you can help me a little bit and say where Arlene came from. It's kind of hard for me to say as well, but I think she's, a, she's kind of a personification of something very scary. <laughs> I read a, a review of the book that talked about this, the two Arlene poems as being like recurring bad dreams, which I thought was a good way of looking at it. I guess I'm, I'm always quite intrigued by the sort of relationships between people and power dynamics and particularly kind of have this kind of creepy fascination with people who are in positions of 
authority or in sort of nurturing parent type roles and what happens when they abuse those or kind of act in a way that's not appropriate to that I mean I don't mean not talking about like paedophilia or something but more a sort of psychological thing for example like the the dynamic between patient and doctor which is a recurring one in the book where the doctors are clearly forgetting the Hippocratic Oath in a, in a big way yeah, yeah exactly so yeah I don't know <laughs> I don't know where this fascination comes from but I just sort of like to kind of play around with those kind of dynamics so Arlene is a character who is in in a sort of I suppose a kind of the role of like a mother figure or sort of aunt or something who's supposed to be looking after these it's not clear even to me um, how old the characters in the poem are but sort of sisters of a like young-ish and and it all kind of goes horribly wrong and the for me it's just mainly the poems are, are mainly about kind of fear and claustrophobia and a kind of repetitive nature of that I suppose they're more conveying an atmosphere than any sort of like particular narrative I kind of felt myself to be in the gothic deep south and I'm not quite sure why I don't know if that's if that's just me no, that's definitely something I was maybe aiming at. I've got I've always been really fascinated by sort of American Gothic and the Deep South and I've read uh, a lot of American literature and yeah, obviously the name Arlene kind of conjures up that kind of thing as well. After I'd written the poem, I actually remembered this book that I'd read a lot when I was a teenager called um, Flowers in the Attic it's by Virginia Andrews that was this kind of trashy American Gothic trilogy. Well, actually, I think there were more books in it than a trilogy, but the main, the first one, Flowers in the Attic, is about these this family of siblings who are, for some reason that I can't remember, they are separated from their parents and they're sent to live with their grandparents and they're locked away in the attic. And... Um, Gradually over time, it becomes clear that the grandparents are like slowly poisoning them or something. So it's a really grim story, but weirdly compelling. And I don't know if that somehow like fed into this poem. I feel that it, it may have done on some level. That relationship that you mentioned about the abuse of power crops up again in a guide to corseting. The sort of chilling thing there, I thought, was the extent to which the speaker, who is the recipient of this, increasingly restrictive corseting like a, like an animal almost she talks about her trainer the extent to which she has imbibed the values and the the ideals that are being expressed by this and to the extent she's repeating them and they're sort of embedded in the poem the fact that this is this is a good thing to do even as her breath is literally being squeezed out of her yeah i think that poem is kind of exploring the way that the that character, the kind of submissive party, is kind of taking part in in her submission in a sort of active way. It's like she she's kind of complicit. Yeah, complicit. Yeah, I think that's again. I'm just sort of looking at the kind of power relationship and slightly subverting the idea that there's like the dominant person in that relationship is the one who's completely in control. Like this character the corseted girl feels like she is taking a control over her life through totally relinquishing control to this like restrictive garment. Someone told me they had interpreted the poem as being about anorexia, which I'd certainly never intended, but I could see that that could be a reading of it as well. Um, Because there's 
obviously issues of like discipline and um, control that go along with that kind of mindset. The poem after Sweet Arlene is called The House by the Railroad. And the epigraph to that poem is from Norman Bates and Psycho. And it says, this place, this place happens to be my only world. That kind of resonated for me that many of the characters who speak in your poems are enclosed in and know only the world of their own, which may be surreal or absurd or or very much at variance to to everyday reality. Yeah, that's an interesting way of looking at it. Um, uh, yeah, I think each probably a lot of the characters are very like, I suppose, inwardly, lo- inward looking or like claustrophobically kind of stuck in their particular setting. But they've, but they've got the power of language. I mean, that's what distinguishes them, the power of language to conjure things up or to alter reality or to point in completely different directions, it seemed to me. Even when they're constrained, language allows them to to imagine themselves differently. That's an interesting point. Um, I think imagination is, yeah, probably quite a kind of key motif, although that seems kind of a obvious thing to say, given that it's a poetry collection. Um, it seems to me that they are not just a little bit empowered by the by what language can do, but they it really offers quite expansive power. I suppose that's what struck me about your writing, just the degree to which it's possible through language to alter or imagine our, our mental landscapes. In 32 Fuetes, there's a character who is chained to fantasy, and I suppose that's the negative side of fantasy, but it seemed to me that sometimes your characters were released by fantasy. Yeah, I, c- I think that's probably true. Um, but I suppose the question is, why is why, why am I writing characters who, who are like that? It's not like I haven't set out with any particular intent, but I suppose because I'm not someone whose writing is like informed by extensive travel, I have tended to kind of focus sort of on like small personal experiences or like things I've taken from other kind of cultural experiences. So there's a, yeah. But, but in a way that's the opposite of domestic and small. Although you may, your starting point may be something which is domestic and not related to travel, it seems to me that you kind of explode. I mean, you, there's a poem, interna- is it International um, Year of the Poem? Yeah. Which is really just like a sort of fantastical celebration of the power of poems and poems are going off. You talk about poems going off and it's like they're rockets or they're bombs and it seems to me that your poems kind of go off in that sense. They kind of explode with potential oh that's a nice nice way of um, imagining it i know i just always feel like it's maybe not that interesting what i have to say because i've like i've put down whatever it is i've put down and i find it very hard to then come back afterwards and say oh well i was intending to do that or that means this or whatever i i just feel a bit mute or something on the subject because whatever it I had to say is said in a in poetic form or something. Let me let let me let you say it in poetic form then. Let's have another poem from the the collection. And the tomato salad is the next one you've selected. The tomato salad, Um, and this is dedicated to Lois Lee. The tomato salad was breathtaking. Sometime in the late 1990s, the Californian sun ripened a crop of tomatoes to such a pitch you could hear them screaming. Did I mention this was in California? There was corn on the cob. She was English and her heart almost stopped 
when her aunt served her a bowl of red and yellow tomatoes so spectacular she would never get over them. I can only imagine the perfectly suspended seeds, the things a cut tomato knows about light, or in what fresh voice of sweet and tart those tomatoes spoke when they told my dearest friend, Yoshi Yoshi Lamboka Satuti Futwa Tomata, in the language of all sun-ripened fruits. Thank you very much. So let me ask you a straightforward question. Where, where, did, where did this come from? Um, well, this is one that does have a clear provenance. Um, I suspect. <laughs> it came from a combination of things, one of which was the friend to whom the poem is dedicated genuinely ate a very a kind of memorable tomato salad many years ago. And she's someone who, who's sort of very likes to wax lyrical about things that she's eaten and um, she has talked about this tomato salad over and over again and I you know it always sounded like this really a magical kind of meal and linked to it having taken place in California which I think to a lot of British people always seems like this sort of sun sort of dappled carefree place so that was the kind of I suppose the kind of background to the narrative and then I was having a conversation with another poet friend who about um, how few poems about friendship we had come across compared to obviously there's like tons of poems about romantic love and friendship is something that's very important to me and I, um, I felt like it would be nice to try and write something about friendship so those kind of th- two things came together and I think it ended up sort of being w- with the kind of made up language in the poem sort of saying that actually it's really hard to write about friendship. It's sort of incomprehensible or, or like talking about it is, is sort of very hard to communicate or something except in this made up language. So, so sort of obliquely through the, the medium of tomatoes. Yeah. <laughs> you talked right back at the beginning about the letters which inspired Letter to Husband and how that was inspired by your reading. And I wondered, do you have sort of lots of little seedlings that might germinate into poems, ideas that you've picked up from your reading or from life that are sort of dormant but pregnant with possibility? Yeah, well, I don't know whether they're pregnant with possibility, but I do. That's kind of how I work, I suppose, as I... I make little notes about things that have interested me or I'll get like a kind of um, a line into in my head that I'll make a note of that hasn't yet kind of got any legs. So I've, yeah, I have all these things written down. And then at some point, if I suddenly feel like I've got a bit of time to try and do some writing, I'll like then flick through the notebook and see if anything kind of stands out or feels ready to be worked on. And some things just never do, and sometimes things are hanging around for years before they develop into anything, and sometimes things do develop, start developing quite quickly, so that's kind of how it happens. I very rarely just would write a whole poem just in one go. And is, is there a right moment, do you think, or is that a sort of romantic outsider's notion? Do you sometimes just have to say, okay, I'm going to sit down and, and sort of concentrate and and push this along rather than wait for the right moment? Uh, I think it's a combination of things. Increasingly, I think it's more about discipline. I've been sort of very busy with other work stuff for quite a while, and 
I can just see if I don't like force myself to take a day to do some writing, it work just like won't happen. Um, whereas in the past, I think I had a, maybe a bit more time and it just was naturally a little bit more inspired for want of a better word. So it, I could sort of just sit down and, and write without having to like be sort of really st strict on myself. So yeah, not so much a right moment as just Although I think sometimes it, it ends up seeming as if it was the right moment, like you realise that something happened in your life that linked to something you'd, you'd kind of picked up on a while ago that made it take shape more or something. The last poem, Emily, that you selected from the collection is called Nothing Sets My Heart Aflame. So maybe I could ask you to read that. Nothing Sets My Heart Aflame. I have discovered the meaning of life and it is curatorial. I was displaying the contemporary hunger for objects and it was not unusual. I did the research. I am not the only one for whom the word vintage has become like a lozenge. My eye lounges among the relevant pages of the premier auction website. You will have some experience of this. Perhaps there was something missing in your life and it was a mid-century lampshade or a fixed gear bicycle. Nothing sets my heart aflame like a minimalist font library. Oh my God, some bridges are feats of engineering and design. I spend whole mornings gazing at my critol windows. When the class war happened, one side was busy buying salvaged parquet flooring. I don't know what the other side was doing. If I only had a brown leather satchel, I would be more formed politically. I believe in the power of acquisition to cleanse the soul. I am also taken by the clothes women wear in the magazines I read at my physiotherapists. In the right get-up, anything is possible. The olden days are very contemporary at the moment. I feel an urge to wear braces and men's trousers, but that fashion has passed. I cannot find the right accoutrements in the shops. We have nearly run out of eras. I don't know what to do. Should I make my own clothing and wear a necklace of cotton reels? Should I go to Berlin? But I see something of myself in a perspex brooch. Give me a moment. I'll be okay after I've looked through this collection of postcards of modernist churches. My crisis is relatively universal. Every time I think a new thought, I can smell an old one burning. This poem, I connected when I was reading the collection with some fears because it also seems to be expressing suppressed, bubbling fears and anxieties in this case about, about our material culture and how we seek happiness from it. Yeah, that's um, uh, an interesting connection because I think that those two poems are the most recently written. So they're probably slightly similar in style, but I hadn't actually thought of them as being similar in preoccupation, but that's probably true. And they're, I guess they're also similar in that they're kind of like um, listy poems, which for some reason I've, I've kind of gotten into a phase of of writing, at like most things I've written <laughs> since in the last sort of eight months or whenever it was since this collection was like finalised, have kind of taken the form of lists. It's as if I've forgotten how to link things together or something. Yeah, but I think the, the worries in this, are maybe a bit more nihilistic or something than in some fears, which I feel like feels a bit more hopeful, strangely. <laughs> I 
don't know if that makes sense. Because yes, you. because the fear the fears in, in in this poem are really about running out of fixations. You know, the, having exhausted all the possibilities of of retro and vintage and things to become, you know, objects of desire, which yeah. are worthy of, of one's attention. And actually the fear that that's, you know, there are no more bygone eras left to consume. Yeah. And I think there's a sort of like depress, depressive sort of attitude in the idea that there's so much fixation on all of these things. But once you've kind of concluded that they're meaningless, then you're left with nothing anyway. There's a, I don't know, sort of suppressed franticness or something, you know, about wh which direction to turn in. The, the speaker says, should I go to Berlin? It's like, it's like where, where next? What do, I, what, do I, what do I do next? Yeah, that's, I like that um, phrase, suppressed franticness. I think that's quite a, a good way of describing, um, like, quite a contemporary mindset, especially with, like, stuff like social networking and just the general way that the internet kind of forces the user to behave mentally like I often notice this myself is that you you kind of really notice your brain has kind of speeded up in a sort of a quite an unsettling way and then so that's happening at one level and you're sort of trying to respond really quickly to all these different sort of source sources of stimuli but then there's this like emotional like malaise or something where which I can't really put my finger on where that comes from or how it manifests itself or something but that sort of seems to be the kind of um, overriding attitude well, so I, suppose, I suppose the list is well suited to an age in which we can click from one thing to another and there are no there are no real links you know it's juxtapositions rather than any kind of deeper connection isn't it yeah yeah that's true actually and probably the kind of listing that I've started doing comes directly from having started using things like Twitter and stuff a lot more so you you become adept at like writing sort of frag things in a fragmented way and maybe lose slightly the more long form kind of abilities what, what next <laughs> what next it does feel like quite a sort of weird phase because you, you kind of like I was saying earlier you've kind of given away everything that you've written and now you've got nothing left and the hope is that you're going to write more but that I sort of feel sort of terrified that that's not going to happen and there's also a sort of sense that you should be t kind of taking a slightly different direction or doing something a bit different which is hard to do consciously I think and could end up seeming mannered or like like you had sort of deliberately been trying to do that, which I wouldn't want to happen. I don't know, I kind of just sort of feel a bit like, well, it was my ambition to write a book of poems and well, I've done that now. So I don't know if I need to do anything else. <laughs> um, so I just, my main goal for the moment is just to try and read a lot more and then just see what happens. I was talking to Emily Berry. Her collection, Dear Boy, is out now in paperback. For more information about it, visit faber.co.uk. That's all for this edition of the Faber Podcast, but I'll be back again soon with another programme. You can make sure you never miss the podcast by subscribing to it on iTunes. It's free, quick and easy. Go to iTunes and type Faber in the search box on the podcast page, and a subscription is just a couple of clicks away. Until next time, thank you very much for listening, and goodbye.